Professor Avi Loeb is a former chair of the astronomy department at Harvard University, founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. He is also the head of the Galileo Project, the systematic scientific search for evidence of extraterrestrial technological artifacts. Professor Loeb is the author of the best-selling Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, and the most recent Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Professor Loeb, welcome to Eurotrash. It's an absolute honor. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. You probably already know what I'm going to ask you first. On July 26th, we witnessed an American congressional hearing like no other. David Grush, a decorated Air Force intelligence officer, stated that he absolutely believes that the U.S. government is in possession of multiple extraterrestrial UAPs, or unidentified anomalous phenomena, uh, formerly known as UFOs, Not only that, but apparently the U.S., as well as many other world governments, has a secret retrieval program, snatching up aircraft that have supposedly crashed on Earth. Furthermore, although he admitted he hasn't seen the alleged alien aircraft himself, he said that non-human biologics were found at these crash sites. Basically, he is convinced that the U.S. is in possession of alien aircraft, as well as alien pilots. What do you make of these claims? Well, he didn't have access to the evidence. Uh, He heard it from 40 eyewitnesses. Uh, The good news is that uh, he was asked by Congress people to provide the contact information of the people he spoke with, who he claims were involved in these programs. So within the coming months, uh, these uh, Congress people will uh, try to go down this uh, path and figure out if the story is fabricated or real. And if we don't hear anything within a year, we will know it's fabricated. Uh, It's all about evidence because people can say anything. And uh, of course, we know from the Women's uh, World Cup in soccer that uh, in many instances that were controversial, the uh, referee relied on video cameras. That's the evidence uh, collected by instruments. Uh, the referee did not go around and ask the players what they think or the audience what they think. Uh, the idea is that you need to seek evidence collected by instruments, not the eyewitness testimonies. So I am intrigued by this testimony, but not convinced because we haven't had access to the evidence. And as a scientist, you know, my fundamental question is whether uh, the evidence will come from politicians in Washington, D.C., or from scientists like myself. Uh, I just went on an expedition to the Pacific Ocean a couple of months ago. We're going to talk about that later. Oh, yes. And we will talk about that, but it's quite possible that we will learn something new from the evidence that we collected in that expedition. And uh, we are anticipating releasing the scientific paper very soon. All right. If we come to David Grush uh, for a second longer, naturally, like you said, um, a lot of criticism followed because there was no evidence. Quite a few people likened the claims to an episode of the X-Files. The pushback I found most interesting was basically the simplest one. For example, even if we concede that aliens are in fact visiting us, why would they man their aircraft? Excuse me. Even we already have drones that we use for really dangerous stuff. Also, why would all this sophisticated technology are they crashing on Earth so often? Well, uh, it depends how many such objects exist. Of course, if uh, you know there are thousands of them and one of them crashes, it's not uh, a bad record. And it also depends on the circumstances. It's possible that they crash because the U.S. military fired at those crafts. I mean, we don't know what exactly happened and if it's real. And uh, the question is, is it real? And is there material evidence for it? The only scenario that I can imagine is if the U.S. government had that in possession such things uh, because it's the only organization that monitors the entire sky uh, for national security purposes. Astronomers monitor a small fraction of the sky and focus on very distant sources. So if a a bird flies overhead, they ignore it. But uh, the U.S. government has a a day job, which is to protect the nation. And as a result, they notice unusual things. So it's possible that over decades, they had some very unusual objects that they 
identified. Um, and if you know they collected the materials, uh, the government is not a scientific organization. So the first thing they would like to know is whether it belongs to adversaries, other nations. But then uh, when they realize maybe it's not, they could have delegated the figuring out what this is to corporations. And the relationship between corporations and government uh, uh, are similar to the relationship between a psychiatrist and a patient. A psychiatrist will never solve the problem of a patient because then uh, they will not get paid. Uh, so uh, in the same way, corporations would prefer to keep it uh, unresolved uh, for decades to get paid. And the only way to get around that is to share these materials with scientists. And I should emphasize anything coming from interstellar space started the journey millions of years ago or billions of years ago before humans existed. So it doesn't really care about how we split the land on this rock that we call Earth. And it's not a matter of national security. It should be knowledge that is shared by all humans. And that's the way science operates. And also, if you engage scientists, you have a chance of, um, you know, benefiting from the best uh, minds in the world rather than keeping it hidden and uh, having it at the privy of some uh, administrators, bureaucrats or engineers that they do not have all the tools to figure it out. Generally speaking, what do you think of UAP sightings, which, if any, seem credible to you? I haven't seen uh, convincing evidence beyond the reasonable doubt so far, but it's possible that the reason for that is the most convincing evidence is classified because it was collected by classified sensors that the US government has access to, because there are people within government talking about uh, very unusual objects, but I haven't seen data that confirms that. And of course, if pilots tell me that they saw, and I spoke with Ryan Graves and others, and uh, they say that they had uh, seen unusual things. That is not sufficient for a scientist because I, I want to see the data from instruments that I have full control over that are calibrated. And also I wanted to get such data from uh, a systematic survey of the sky. Uh, and that's what we are doing in the Galileo project that I'm leading. Uh, the main difference between anecdotal reports where a pilot happened to be at the right place at the right time compared to a systematic study of the sky is that in a systematic study of the sky, you monitor the sky all the time and you figure out what is the noise, what kind of uh, birds or uh, balloons or airplanes or drones you happen to see quite frequently. And that constitutes the background. And then on top of that, if you see something unusual, you know how to calibrate it. But if you happen to see something unusual by chance, you don't know whether it's background or whether it's real. You can't... Uh, calibrate the statistics of how frequently it happens and how rare it is. And the, the worst is actually to go to places where there is a lot of background. And some people argue, you know, the war in Ukraine is a good place to be in. Uh, who knows? Maybe there are UAP there. And some, there were some reports by astronomers about it. I don't think that's a good idea because that's a place where you have lots of things flying in the sky and you, had, you, you will have a hard time distinguishing between a drone and something unusual. Uh, be, simply because you're not aware of all the, um, you know, the classified the drones and, and perhaps even uh, satellites that are being used for espionage over there. So uh, it's much better to go to the Sahara Desert when there, where there is nothing or, or uh, Alaska or the South Pole. You know, these are sites where there is not much activity and the noise level is smaller. So any signal there would be intriguing. Mm. What about these videos that were released by the Pentagon, for example? Uh, they were not convincing. I mean, they uh, showed some motions that perhaps look unusual. But in fact, um, there is the new office in government, the Old Domain Anomaly Resolution Office under the Pentagon, that uh, started looking into hundreds of cases where uh, military personnel reported things. And uh, the claim by the director of that office, Aero, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick, is that only a few percent of the reports are indeed anomalous, that in fact, they can figure out that, you know, maybe 97% of them are uh, drones, balloons, have mundane explanations. So it, it shows you that it must be a, a, a mixed bag. And in fact, the strongest correlations you find between reports about UAP uh, is with uh, population density. 
basically telling you that the more eyes are looking at the sky, the higher the likelihood of a report oh, would be. And it's probably because there are balloons everywhere, there are drones everywhere. So the more people look at the sky, the more reports you get. But it doesn't mean that there are so many unusual objects. It's just that it's difficult to figure them out with relatively uh, you know, a low-level instruments. The more I listen to you, the more you seem skeptical, but not outright dismissive of these claims. No, like, for I mean... For example, David Grush uh, <laughs> or site, UFO sightings. I should tell you that I'm, as, as of now, I'm uh, leading the only scientific project which is trying to figure out what UAP are. And that means that I'm intrigued by these reports and I try to figure it out. I know that the government cares about it. I know that the public is very interested. So it's, I think, the duty of uh, scientists to help uh, and figure out what these things are and get to the bottom of them. Uh, and so that's what we are doing with the Galileo project. Mm -hmm. We have an, a, a, an operating observatory at Harvard University and it's collecting data 24-7 in the infrared, optical, radio, and audio. And we, we use uh, machine learning uh, software to figure out whether we are looking at a bird, at a drone, at an airplane, balloon, or something else. So we, I'm taking it seriously in the sense that I want to figure it out. And hopefully within the coming years, the Galileo project will shed some light on the nature of these objects. You know, and as a scientist, even if one in a thousand or one in 10,000 objects appears to be unexplained, not from this earth, that would be a great triumph because we will discover that we are not alone, okay? For the government, the motivation is completely different. They want to protect the nation, and so they want to know what most of the objects are, whether they are Chinese, Russian, or anything else. Um, and human-made uh, objects are obviously their focus, so in a way, I see the work of a scientist as complementary to the work of government. Anything that was made in China is very boring as far as I'm concerned. Staying with X-Files and men in dark suits and sunglasses for a final time, you are one of the most well-known scientists who is actively searching for evidence of extraterrestrial life. Has anyone from a secret agency ever contacted you? And would you tell me if they had? I would tell you uh, what you if see. If you can't say it out loud, professor, please just nod twice. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I was never approached, um, maybe because um, I'm just following the scientific method where, you know, I'm not seeking uh, any classified data. I'm not trying to convince government to do one thing or another. I mean, uh, they have their day job and we are not in position to tell them to declassify data. Uh, I'm just trying to pursue my work as a scientist because the sky is not classified. It's only the instruments that look at the sky that are classified. And also the oceans are not classified. So I'm just doing scientific work in the open, uh, completely transparently, without uh, hiding anything. And uh, I'm doing it the way science does it. Now, um, of course, most of my colleagues, they focus on very distant objects, on questions about the universe at large. I say, let's look at our backyard and see if there is any unusual object there. And uh, it's just like going to your backyard near your home and uh, checking everything to see if there, there is any tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. That's a reasonable proposition as far as I'm concerned, because we sent five probes to interstellar space, Voyager 1, Voyager 2, Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11, and New Horizons. And that's just over half a century. And you can imagine other civilizations that existed for billions of years before us, because most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun. And we know that a significant fraction of them have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And with chemical propulsion, the kind of rockets that we sent, you can traverse the Milky Way galaxy in half a billion years. So they could have arrived here to our doorstep or sent something that would arrive here. And obviously, if they arrive to our doorstep before we will arrive to their doorstep, they're more advanced than we are, or at least they preceded us. So we can learn from them. So I see it as an opportunity to learn. And that's why I'm interested. It has nothing to do with me trying to uh, gain any knowledge that is of national security importance. And that's why perhaps the government doesn't really care about it. 
Professor, does AI kind of throw a wrench into the works when it comes to making contact with other beings from outer space, at least as we have classically imagined it? We are only scratching the surface with these large language models now. Uh, but assuming we follow this rapid trajectory and that other technological civilizations kind of do the same as they progress, wouldn't it be more likely that whatever we might encounter out there would probably be some sort of AI instead of a biological... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is, uh, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, artificial intelligence could be shaping our future. And in fact, we will start sending it to space. And in fact, um, if you see of what we have done so far, we NASA sent uh, to Mars the Perseverance rover and the, the Ingenuity helicopter. And uh, they are directed by engineers in uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab. I call that the helicopter parenting because the engineers are parenting, you know, literally speaking, a helicopter there, but they also in the sense that, you know, they are telling those devices what to do. So these are robots that are operated by people. But then a, a much more appropriate approach, if you go interstellar, is to send the systems that operate by themselves. They don't wait for guidance from the senders because even for uh, at the speed of light you know it takes thousands of years to for light signal to traverse the milky way galaxy so it, it doesn't make any sense for a probe to wait for guidance we can only use that method close to us uh, mars is sufficiently close for that so uh, the way i see the future in space is as uh, shaped by artificial intelligence astronauts i call them ai astronauts and actually, I discuss them very extensively in my new book that is about to appear uh, next week, Interstellar. Yep. And, um, and I talk about the fact that, as you say, that indeed um, uh, other civilizations may have uh, evolved far beyond where we are. And we might have a hard time figuring them out. And maybe we will use our own AI systems to figure their AI systems because they will have some kinship. But... More generally, you know, uh, an advanced technological civilization may appear to us as making miracles, things we can't really understand. And uh, that's the realm of uh, religion in the past. You know, we were attributing such things to God, uh, doing things that, uh, that are superhuman, that are way beyond what we can do. Uh, and uh, therefore, I, you know, I argue that um, a very advanced uh, scientific civilization is a good approximation to God. Uh, just imagine, for example, in the Old Testament, Moses uh, was witnessing the burning bush. And uh, that was uh, a bush that was burning and never consumed. And uh, this miracle convinced Moses to believe in God. But if I were next to him with the infrared sensors of the Galileo project, I could have advised Moses about the temperature of the bush, the amount of energy emitted during time and I could have done a calculation to tell Moses, look, this is not natural for a bush to last so long, uh, more quantitatively using instruments. And obviously it would have increased uh, the sense of awe that Moses had. So um, what I'm saying is that, you know, if we do encounter an advanced technological civilization, uh, it might be a way of uh, merging religion and uh, science in the sense that uh, something real in, in, you know, that we can measure with our instruments may uh, inspire all the way that the miracles in religious texts uh, were described. I was listening to an interview of yours recently, and you made an interesting argument that I've never heard before. I thought it was fascinating, although it did hurt my ego a little bit. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You said that there might be many advanced alien civilizations out there, but we're just so average that no one is paying attention to us. Ouch. Could you break that down a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, you can look at um, your family members. You know, uh, my, my, in my family, I had the young daughters. Uh, uh, when they were very young, they stayed at home and they develop a perspective about life uh, in which they are at the center of the world. That was their thinking. And that's because we paid a lot of attention to the girls and uh, uh, there was nobody else to compete with them for our attention. But as soon as they went to the kindergarten, they realized, oh, there are kids that might be smarter than we are. 
that was a shock and that hurt their ego. But it's something that all of us are going through in life once we realize there is a bigger environment out there where we are not that important. So only when you focus on your immediate environment, you can believe that you are really, um, you know, exceptional and unique and special and important. And once you broaden the scope of your vision, you realize, no, uh, you're just, uh, you know, just one drop in the ocean, so to speak. And, um, you know, we tend to think of us ourselves as very, I mean, look at Putin, for example. I'm sure he has a lot of self-confidence, right? And uh, where does he get it from? Because he's focusing just on Russia and Ukraine and these, this region. So, but if you look at it from a distance, you, you know, from a, uh, for example, a spacecraft that went to the moon, uh, you can't even tell where the border between Russia and Ukraine is. It looks like there is this blue marble of the earth and uh, it's completely, it, it appears completely unimportant as to who conquers this tiny piece of land that you barely see from a distance. And in the big scheme of things, the moon is really very close to us. You know, it's like one part in a quadrillion uh, or even less than that uh, of the size of the universe. You know, that's uh, uh, completely negligible if you think about it. It's just like the ratio between the head of a pin, the size of the head of a pin, and the most distant planet in the solar system, you know. So there is so much real estate out there in the universe that everything happening on this rock that we were born on uh, appears completely meaningless and not so important, you know. And the only way for you to think that we are important is if you just focus on our immediate environment. So my point is, if someone comes from thousands of light years away and visits us, it's probably not because that you know, whoever sent that something uh, thought about us uh, because we existed as humans. We existed only for a few million years, okay? And uh, to travel through the Milky Way galaxy takes half a billion years with the chemical rockets that we sent. So we were not around. Our planet was dominated by microbes when the journey started. And why would anyone target a planet controlled by microbes you know, there must be a different reasons. Uh, you know, it's not because eventually it will develop humans because that was not guaranteed by any, any means, you know. And for a long time, there were relatively dumb animals on this planet, on this rock, you know, like probably that's the most common situation that you find if you visit. And also within a billion years, the sun will boil off all the oceans on Earth. So life as we know it will not exist. There is just a short window of time. Uh, where life might be interesting if you think of humans as interesting. Um, so it's clearly not about us. And the way, the bigger way I think about it is we arrived recently to the cosmic stage only over the past few million years as the human species, which is one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe. And moreover, we are not at the center of stage. We know that since Copernicus and Galileo. I mean, before that, we thought that we are at the center. No, we are not. So um, if you are not at the center of stage and you arrive to a play at the end of the play, the play is not about you. I mean, I'm just using common sense. If the play was about us, we would be there from the beginning. And we would be at the center of stage, just like Aristotle argued or, or the church that, you know, wanted. Uh, we would be just at the center. Everything would move around us. That would be the natural way. No, we are not. And we came only at the end. So... You know, we better seek other actors that have been around for longer and ask them what the play is about. It's just common sense. It's just a sense of modesty that, you know, we, sh we must acquire if we look at the big picture. Speaking of time frames, David Kipping, um, he's another astrophysicist who's researching exoplanets, I believe, uh, that might support life. He said that it's extremely unlikely we will ever really engage with anyone else. He makes this assumption uh, that at least in the vastness of space-time, civilizations rise and fall, like you said, in a blink of an eye, right? Right. So we would have to be incredibly synchronized with someone oh, else, no. which is no, almost that, impossible. No, that, that's only if you're waiting for a phone call. So or like, if, uh, I don't know, uh, encounters of the third kind or ET no, or no, anything. No, 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 no. So, um, you know, if you are looking at your mailbox for any packages that arrived in the mail, there is no requirement that the sender is still alive. 
Okay, so there could be, uh, you know, space trash uh, in the spirit of Euro trash. There could be some, tra- you know, uh, objects, gadgets that are not functional anymore. That will happen to our own probes once they exit to interstellar space. They will be trash, and those are, you know, accumulating over time because they can't escape. Uh, chemical rockets cannot escape from the gravitational pull of the Milky Way galaxy. They move 10 times too slow. And um, they will just accumulate in interstellar space over billions of years, just like plastics accumulate in the ocean. Um, they, the amount of them keeps growing over time. And, and you could have another type of gadgets that you know is still functional and may survive for long uh, periods of time, but the senders could, could be dead. So you don't need the senders to be around. It's just that, you know, there are things that you find that belong to the senders. Just think about um, uh, archaeology. You know, we find relics of cultures that do not exist anymore. The Mayans, you know, were, most of them were wiped out a long time ago, but we can still find the ruins of the Mayans and appreciate the kind of culture they had. So in the same spirit, we can learn about uh intelligent uh, in extraterrestrial civilizations just by finding the relics they left behind in space. And uh, the easiest is to find them near us, not to go very far because uh, space is vast. Oh, that's a bit of a downer, Professor Loeb. Like instead of the <laughs> idea of chilling and hanging out with E.T., we're just going to stumble across some <laughs> alien diapers floating in space. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. It's... Uh, Somewhat disappointing, but um, uh, on the other hand, you know, think about uh, if you were to stay at home and, uh, uh, you know, you don't even check your backyard, you don't look through the window, then obviously it's natural to say, well, I don't have anyone out there uh, that, you know, I can share my thoughts with. Uh, I'm alone. Um, You know, that's what a single person says. But then, of course, what you tell that person is to find a partner. You need to go to dating sites. You need to look through the windows. You need to search for any objects that arrive from the streets so that you know what's out there. And we haven't done that until recently. Only over the past decade, we found some interstellar objects. That's why I'm engaged in the search. You know, and many of my colleagues, including Keating, you know, they just talk and talk and talk and talk. They just have opinions all the time, publish opinions talk with each other, express their view about whether I should go to the Pacific Ocean or not because the chances are small, say that the government data is probably wrong because it doesn't agree with models about stones. You know, this is just talk and talk and talk. The point is, it's not about talking. I mean, we've done talking since the days of Enrico Fermi, who said, where is everybody? Very pretentious, you know, to say, sit in Los Alamos for lunch and ask, where is everybody? Like, what do you expect them to come with you to lunch at the time that you're having lunch in Los Alamos, 1950? You know, that's exactly what you want them to do. Why would they do that? First, you are not that important. Second, space is vast. Time is very long, measured in billions of years. What's the chance that they would be exactly there exactly at that time for you to witness it? It's very small. So it's a very pretentious statement to say, I don't see anything. Well, to find something, you have to seek it. Like, if you were to say the same thing about dark matter, just think about it. Most of the matter in the universe is not known. Uh, It's of a substance that we don't know its nature. And so we've been searching actively. We spent billions of dollars to look for it. But nevertheless, just imagine the same attitude, okay? Saying, you know, I look around. I don't see the dark matter. Maybe there is no dark matter. Where is the dark matter? Why don't I see it? Well, that's the whole point, that you have to search for it to find it. You know, things that are obvious, like birds, like stones, like rocks, you know, these are things we know about. But then there are other things. Not Then the universe is not made just of birds and stones, things that you see very often. It's not, okay? And it, it you have to search for those things that are more difficult for you to observe. And that includes objects that are smaller than a football field within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. You know, we can't see with our best telescopes objects that are smaller than a football field through the reflection of sunlight. We can't see that. So there could be millions. In fact, there are uh, millions of uh, objects like the meteor from 2014 uh, that I went to search for. 
There are millions of them within the orbit of the Earth around the sun, but we can't see them because they're, they're too faint for our telescopes. So just saying, where are these objects? Well, you have to develop a, a giant telescope to see them if you want to see them. But you can't just say, I don't see them with my naked eye because your naked eye is unable to see that thing. So the only way to find such meteors as of now is by the fireball that they create when they collide with Earth. And that happens once per decade. So this object from 2014 that I went to study, you know, represents a population of objects. There are millions of them within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Every decade, one of them collides with Earth. Only then you can see it. And the first one that was seen was in 2014. So, you know, it's not as if Enrico Fermi had a telescope searching for such objects and said, I'm searching, but I don't find anything. No, he didn't even look. He just asked, where is everybody? And everyone keeps talking and talking and talking about this question since then. And then people say, well, we've been searching a lot. We haven't seen anything. Well, you haven't. Okay, you haven't searched because such an object, a meter-sized object, collides with Earth from interstellar space only once per decade. And the U.S. government had satellites that could detect it only over the past decade. So one was found in 2014, the first one ever recognized, first one in history. So you can't just say, you know, I have an opinion because that is not substantiated by evidence. What you need to say is, let's seek the evidence. Let's do the best we can. And I said that, you know, just two months ago, going to the Pacific Ocean, right. even that was an issue to some of these people. Right, they right. came We're to me and said, why would you do that? Yeah, we're going to come to that in just a second. But just nevertheless, so whatever package we might receive from outer space, whether it's alien garbage or um, meaning of the life in the universe, it will probably come from a civilization that is long gone, right? Yeah, probably. I agree. Okay. Yeah. okay, that's a bit sad. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, it's, I can't uh, help uh, myself. You, I'm sorry. You know, the, the reason for that is simple. It's because it takes a long time to travel. Uh, according to known physics, of course, you can always say, oh, maybe they have a warp drive, maybe all kinds of fantasies. These we don't know exist. And also, you know, we don't know if it's possible from fundamental physics to do such, such things, you know, irrespective of the engineering. So as of now, if I limit my imagination to what we know in physics, you know, it takes thousands of years to move at the speed of light across the Milky Way. It takes a half a billion years to use chemical rockets across the Milky Way. Therefore, on, on such long time scales, civilizations may, may come and go, may not survive for very long. And indeed, the senders are not likely to exist. So that thing they do in the movies, in sci-fi movies, when they just go into a black hole and then they come out in the, on the other end of the universe, yeah, that doesn't work. That's why I don't like these movies. And I, okay. I, you know, I, I, I'm not really a fan of science fiction because it very often doesn't make sense. All right. Professor, I still clearly remember logging into my computer in the beginning of July, only to be greeted by a whole host of news articles with pretty incredible titles. They spoke of a Harvard professor who believes he's found fragments of alien technology in the sea. Professor, what exactly have you found in the waters of right. Papua New Guinea? So first I want to clarify, I never said that. These were journalists who tried to get clickbaits. Of course. And uh, if you look at the actual articles or if you ever listen to a podcast or a video interview that I had, you can see what I actually said because I always say the same things. You know, so it, 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 it's just impossible that the reporter heard something else than I say everywhere else because I always say the same things. You can see consistently uh, that I say the same things in different podcasts, different interviews. And the point is, we went after the relics, the fragments of the first recognized interstellar meteor, which is an object at least half a meter in size that collided with Earth on January 8th, 2014. Almost a decade ago, it, uh, the fireball released a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy and was visible to US government satellites. So they saw, the satellites saw this fireball and they recorded it because they are monitoring Earth for national security threats. Uh, that's the main purpose. But if they see a meteor, they record it, and then they give it to NASA, and NASA catalogs it. So NASA has a catalog of 273 of these. And uh, back in 2019, about five years after this object was discovered, 
I realized that NASA has this catalog. I didn't know about it until then. And I was uh, intrigued because it was a couple of years, actually less, uh, a year and a half after Oumuamua was discovered. So, uh, it, you know, I was very interested in... Uh, Just to clarify, Oumuamua is the cigarette-shaped object that came very close, right? And that yeah, you uh, published a paper on... Right. It was not really cigar... Sh- I mean, it, an artist uh, uh, depicted it as a cigar, but in fact, it was most likely disc-like, uh, a flat, based on the reflection of sunlight. And then in, in um, projection, when you look at it on the sky, then a flat object does appear like a cigar if you look at it side, sideways. Anyway, so... Um, this was the first reported interstellar object, even though the meteor was the actual first one that humanity discovered. But um, only in 2019, uh, I asked uh, my uh, undergraduate student, Amir Siraj, to check this catalog and see if the fastest moving objects could be of interstellar origin because they are not bound to the sun. And indeed, we found this object from 2014 and reported about it in a paper. And then the US government um, in particular, the U.S. Space Command under the Department of Defense confirmed it in a letter to NASA that uh, said that at the 99.999% confidence, it is of interstellar origin. And they wrote this paper, uh, this letter, because uh, our paper was not accepted for publication because my colleagues were arguing they don't believe the U.S. Space Command data. And so the U.S. Space Command went out of their way. You know, they have a day job. Uh, they get more funding than NASA to uh, alert the U.S. president about any uh, national security risks from the sky. And th- it's not their day job to, to care about meteors. But nevertheless, they did it for the sake of science. And they wrote this letter to NASA. So then at that point, my paper was accepted for publication. And I started planning for an expedition to retrieve anything left because we no, knew where, where the fireball was located to within about 10 kilometers. That's the uh, error box of the Department of Defense. So in a way, the Department of Defense came to my defense in terms of the, the origin of this object being interstellar. And they also released the fireball uh, light curve and that allowed us to infer that the material strength of this object was tougher than all 272 space rocks that were cataloged by NASA, all the others. So it was tougher than even iron meteorites because we know that the object exploded only when the stress was extremely high in the lower atmosphere of the Earth. So it was able to maintain its integrity much more than any other space rocks in the NASA catalog. So that was quite intriguing for me because if the object is moving fast and in fact we calculated that it was moving at 60 kilometers per second outside the solar system faster than 95 percent of all stars in the vicinity of the sun relative to the local standard of rest and uh, that implied that it could have benefited from artificial propulsion and maybe it was made of some artificial alloy that is tougher than even iron meteorites that make up five percent of the rocks And um, just think about Voyager colliding with a planet like the Earth Uh, in the future. It will appear as a meteor of unusual strength uh, and also moving faster than usual because of its propulsion. So so we decided to go to the Pacific Ocean. I recruited the uh, 28 people, um, the best in the world for an ocean expedition. Uh, we got funded uh, as soon as, you know, within a few months after I announced this, um, Charles Hoskinson contacted me and said, uh, you have the money. And and then um, we went there uh, between uh, June 24 to 20, uh, June 14 to 28 uh, this year and um, 2023 and found, um, amazingly, found the droplets, the molten droplets from the surface of the object at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Molten droplets from the surface of the object, how big are they? So they uh, are less than a millimeter in size. Between Wow, how do you find that on the bottom of the sea? Yeah, so uh, that was a big challenge to start with. That's the kind of sizes we expected when the surface of the object was uh, exposed to the immense heat from the fireball. Um, that's what you get when meteors enter through the atmosphere. 
Um, and so um, we are talking about a depth uh, of um, about two kilometers for the, the bottom of the ocean. And, uh, and these uh, droplets rained down on the ocean and settled uh, at the bottom of the ocean. So we had, first of all, to identify the location. So we uh, narrowed it down using uh, seismometer data uh, that measured the, uh, the, the sonic boom from the explosion. Uh, and from the time delay, we could tell how far the explosion was from the seismometer. So we narrowed it to a path that was roughly 10 kilometers long, but one kilometer wide. And um, we went there, and the idea was to build a magnetic sled, basically a sled of 200 kilograms, roughly a meter in width, that we dragged on the ocean floor. It was connected with a cable to the ship, and it had magnets on both sides. And the hope was that uh, the object included the iron because it was tough, and um, uh, therefore we can find magnetic particles from the surface. But we also had plan B. If the object was not magnetic, we had a sluicing device that we also built to look for it, just like you search for gold. Uh, you search by the density of the particles. So anyway, the, after six days, well, in the first day, we couldn't get the uh, sled on the bottom of the ocean because the cable would lift it. It, it was kiting above uh, the ocean surface, uh, bottom. And then... Um, we figured that we have to go with a current in the ocean to keep it on uh, at the bottom. And the engineers just figured it out. It was a matter of art, how they realized the, the technique. And once they got it on the ground, we started collecting materials. Mostly it was volcanic ash, uh, black powder. And after the sixth day, uh, I mean, I wrote a, a, an essay. I basically wrote 40, 44 diary reports from the expedition on a daily basis. And all of them appeared in medium.com. You can find it there. Um, and uh, millions of people around the world, they read them and they were translated to Spanish. Uh, and um, in, on the sixth day, I wrote in my diary report, I said, where are the spherules? I honestly asked this question just to show you that I'm not pretending to find things that I don't have. I'm, I'm just saying out, out loud what where we are. And gladly, a day after, we started uh, filtering out the black powder, the tiny uh, volcanic ash particles to look for bigger particles. And um, then uh, we put them under a microscope and lo and behold, we found uh, the first spherule. It was a spherical um, sort of marble, metallic marble that was very distinct from the background sand. And uh, I realized at that point, I was extreme, I was thrilled. I hugged the person who found it because I knew that once, you know, when I see an ant in the kitchen, there must be many more ants out there. And sure enough, within a few hours, we found more spherules, altogether 50 of them on the ship that was fittingly called Silver Star. And then um, we brought the materials back. Uh, and at Harvard, um, I had a summer intern that um, uh, her name is Sophie Bergstrom. She was um, interested in shadowing me, basically following me because she wanted to be uh, a science journalist and wanted to see how science is done. And at, at some point when I came back, she said, that if I can be of help doing the science, I'll be glad to help. And I arranged her a pair of tweezers and uh, a microscope, and she found 650 of more spherules, spherules. So altogether, we have more than 700, most of them found by Sophie. And, uh, and that allowed us to uh, do the statistics of where they were found. And we found that most of them were, you know, most of the extra ones, the ones that, you know, are beyond the, the background, because we went to control sites that are far away. So we could tell what the background is. And there is an excess along the meteor path, showing that we did uncover some uh, of the debris from the meteor. But moreover, uh, we now uh, are analyzing those materials using a mass spectrometer uh, at Harvard and uh, have some very interesting results that we hope to report in a scientific paper soon that I cannot speak about until the paper come, comes out. But um, 
stay tuned. It, it should be exciting. So what have you found? <laughs> I cannot tell you. Uh, uh, if you were to interview me after, you know, at the beginning of September, I would be able to. Okay. Can you say with any certainty if these are kind of natural occurring materials from space or were they actually made? So the first question we are trying to address is whether the material uh, composition is different from solar system materials because the entire solar system was made out of a cloud of gas that was enriched by a nearby exploding star, supernova. And uh, it has very uniform uh, abundance, uh, at least it had initially, uh, a very uniform abundance of uh, elements, various elements. So if something came from outside the solar system, from another region that was exposed to a different star that exploded with different abundances, um, then uh, we should be able to tell uh, clearly uh, from the element abundances whether it's solar system materials or not. I mean, the first thing you can tell easily is whether something came from the sky, because even within the solar system, um, when an object, a meteor, passes through the air, some of the elements get evaporated and it loses them in the, you know, during the fireball phase. So if you see spherules, you can tell that they are not from geological activity on Earth, they're not terrestrial, uh, because they are missing some elements, uh, they lost them. Those are called volatile elements. They lost them as a result of the heat when, uh, when the object entered the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, uh, so we can easily separate, you know, spherules that were that came from a meteor that uh, was, uh, you know, arrived to Earth from outside of Earth, uh, relative to material that was on Earth all along. That can be easily uh, differentiated. But right. beyond that, we can also tell if something came from outside the solar system. That's the first question that we are addressing. And then the second question is the one that you asked, you know, <laughs> can we say that it's technological in origin? That, that is more uh, complicated. And of course, the obvious way to do that is if you, you find a big piece. Uh, because if you find a big piece of the object, you can easily tell the difference between a piece of a rock and a technological gadget because a gadget might have buttons on it. And then, um, you know, in the last class of the spring uh, semester of uh, at Harvard, I asked my students, if we find a gadget with buttons on it, should we press a button? And uh, half of the class said no, because we are worried about the consequences. Half Let's of the press class... it. I'm all for pressing it. Yeah. You, you belong to the second half, which uh, was very much in favor. They wanted, they were very curious. And then uh, one student asked me, what would you do, uh, Professor Loeb? And I said, I would take it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. A scientific answer. Yeah. What if these civilizations are so advanced that even with really tiny objects, you can tell if there's some sort of nanobots or whatever. Ah. Would that be possible? That they're mm -hmm. tiny, but you can still tell that they were actually made by someone? Since we were looking just for those molten droplets, that was the only thing we could detect in this particular expedition. One thing you can do is, uh, you know, if, if, for example, you had the um, semiconductors or you had the computer screens that were melted, you would notice unusual abundance of rare elements. Okay, so some technological devices have rare elements in very different abundance than nature. So that is the kind of thing you can look for. But you cannot hope to, since these were melted by, uh, you know, the, the fireball, and we didn't yet find a big piece, which is, you know, the focus perhaps of a future expedition. We will go after the big piece next. Uh, but first thing we are doing is, trying to tell, you know, demonstrate whether the object came from outside the solar system and whether its element abundances are unusual. One step at a time. Yeah, one step at a time. Stephen Hawking once famously cautioned that if aliens visit us, the outcome would be much like when Christopher Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. He wasn't very keen on us trying to make contact with anyone in outer space. However, in your new book, Interstellar, I want to read it. I haven't had the chance yet because it's going to be published in a week. 
I believe you advocate for the exact opposite. What gives you this confidence? Well, because um, in the case of Columbus, he was a human and uh, he found humans just in a different geographical location. In the in the case of the of the visit by some advanced uh, civilization, you know, first of all, they may be very different than humans in the way they are constructed, but also um, they may have evolved uh, technologically to become something that is way beyond us. Okay, so the situation is like having a biker uh, on the street, you know, uh, look at uh, a colony of ants in the pavement. The, the biker doesn't care less about the ants, you know, whether they go into one crack or another, whether they belong to one colony or another colony, although for, from the point of view of those ants, it's extremely important. They basically compete with other colonies and, you know, like, just like nations here on Earth. Um, so, you know, obviously the ants may want to believe that the biker cares about them, but they see the biker moving so fast that... Um, they can't make sense of it. And uh, that that resem- would resemble more or less the way we look at them. Uh, another way to think about it is us looking at our technological future. You know, it may look to us uh, incomprehensible. Uh, just like um, a cave dweller going to New York City and looking at all the gadgets around, you know, wouldn't really figure out what how, how that is possible and, uh, you know, would have some oh. Uh, looking at those things and come back to the family in the cave and say, you know, there, there are some miracles out there that uh, we cannot really understand. And so I think that would be the natural interactions. And, and I don't, therefore, not um, afraid because I don't think they care about us. I think it's a, a signature of self-importance when you are afraid of something. You, you think that the other entity has, um, you know, is... Um, actually trying to compete with you. But no, if they are so much superior, they don't care about us. And uh, on the other hand, it's an opportunity for us to learn from them. Okay, so that's the way I see it. Just like if you come to a class and you see there is a much smarter kid, uh, it would make sense for you to learn from that kid in the class rather than uh, worry that the kid may harm you. So you're saying that if they wanted to, because they're so advanced, they could have crushed us already. If oh, yeah, that's another. Definitely. They could have done it long ago. Why would they wait for this time to do it? Yeah. Just build that's... a highway like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Build a highway through Earth. You know, no questions yeah, well, asked. You know, for so many millions of years, we were not even distinguishable from nature. Like uh, we were just like animals. Um, right. uh, you know, so the humans came to exist a few million years ago, and most of the time we were in caves, you know, we were just like animals, a little bit different, but not very different. So only over the past century, we started being different. Maybe they, you know, they didn't even notice that. Uh, But at any event, what I'm saying is we have an exponential growth of our technologies right now. Um, And if you extrapolate that a thousand years into the future or a million years or a billion years, you know, just think about what they may have accomplished by now. Professor, you said you don't like science fiction, but I got to ask you this. When we picture aliens or extraterrestrial life, what do you think we get most wrong usually? Oh, we think that biological creatures would visit us. I think it's unlikely because uh, travel through space is very uh, hazardous. Uh, There are cosmic rays that can damage our body very quickly. Of course, maybe biology will uh, evolve in the future. You know, like we know of worms that were found in the Siberian permafrost. Uh, Just a couple of months ago, there was a report about them. Uh, They were revived after 46,000 years and came to life. Uh, And uh, even though they were frozen for 46,000 years uh, in Siberia. So um, maybe there is a way of preserving biology for very long periods of time we haven't figured it out yet um so until we do that uh, i would be skeptical that we can survive for so long and uh it makes more sense to me that we will send ai astronauts that do not have biology at all that are just technological because in principle they can have 3d printers they can reproduce themselves once they get to a planet and use the raw materials 
So why carry those uh, bags of water, the, uh, what we call uh, life here on earth? Why carry those bodies of water with you on a journey that is so long and so dangerous? Uh, if you can, in principle, replicate them using the raw materials on another planet. So the way I would think of it is seeding the galaxy with life as we know it, not by taking the life from here and bringing it there, but instead using the raw materials there to make life as we know it. And uh, that, to me, sounds possible. Within a century from now, we will have the technology to do that. And, um, you know, biology does it already. If you look at the dandelion uh, flower, you know, it sends out seeds uh, with the wind. It doesn't connect them with an umbilical cord, doesn't give them guidance what to do at all. It just sends them out. And they carry the DNA of the dandelion. They make many more dandelions. We can do the same thing, send probes that would self-replicate, just like biology does already. Professor, if other civilizations are there or were there or aliens, uh, do you think they have a sense of humor? Do you think (laughs) a sense of humor is like a universal law, like, I don't know, mathematics or some say music? Well, I do think that a sense of humor um, uh, improves your uh, longevity. You, you, you can live longer if you do have that, because if you get aggravated by any setback or any pushback in life, and there are many of those throughout life, if you pay too much attention and get uh, angry, uh, it basically, it's like erosion, you know, of uh, metal, you know, like uh, it eats into you and then, uh, you see those people who are very upset at what is happening around them and they develop uh, gray hair very quickly. They don't last very long. So if you want to live long, you better learn how to ignore things that upset you and always have a forward-looking approach, like being an optimist, you know, because life is a self-fulfilling prophecy very often. If you don't believe in something, it will not happen. So, um, for example, I went to this expedition. What is the chance of finding millimeter-sized spherules at the bottom of an ocean, two kilometers deep, across a region of 10 kilometers? You know, zero. Uh, and um, I could have you know, listened to the people who tell me, why are you going there? It's a waste of time, waste of money. And I said, you know, instead I said to them, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm doing the heavy lifting. You just sit back and relax. You can be a pessimist if you want. But the point is, just by being an optimist and going there, you know, we were able to find those things, okay? And it would have been very easy to give up. There were many failure points that one can imagine for this expedition. First of all, you know, maybe the location of the meteor was wrong. We wouldn't find anything. Maybe uh, we would not get funded. Maybe I would not be able to recruit qualified engineers that would design the appropriate machinery, you know, the the sled. Maybe the sled would never get on the ocean floor. Maybe it would never collect enough materials of spherules, you know, of of, of the meteor. Uh, And then maybe we won't be able to find them relative to the volcanic ash, the black powder. Or even after we found them, maybe we won't have the mass spectrometer that allows us to tell the composition. Wow. Uh, A lot of things could go wrong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, So you think uh, sense of humor and and, uh, positive outlook on life go hand in hand. So aliens, even if they have a very advanced technology, they're still laughing at fart jokes. Yeah, well, (laughs) yeah, I think it's uh, like, I think in interstellar space, survival of the fittest applies just like uh, Darwin imagined it, Um, except in space, it's uh, those that survive very long uh, and, and that means that they send uh, probes outside of their home planet because eventually they'll die on the home planet when the star boils off all the oceans there, like the sun will do to us in a billion years. So uh, you want to send things out and you want to be optimistic, forward-looking. Uh, you want to send whatever you want to replicate and you want to be joyful. And part of it is um, laughing, you know? Right. Last two questions really quick before I let you go. I'm getting greedy with the intensity of my questions, I know, but it's not every day I get to talk to a world-class astrophysicist, so you have to forgive me for that. Maybe this is more of a theological question, but just personally, 
why do you think the universe is growing life? Why is life, when the conditions are right, springing up at all? Oh, first of all, I don't think there is a purpose behind it. It's just, a, you know, it, it so happens. It's a, a, an emergent phenomena of complexity. So it's the starting point that it, we exist because of gravity, because gravity basically brought things together in a uniform universe. You know, it started pretty much uniform with uh, density of matter everywhere being the same. But then uh, clumps, uh, there were small inhomogeneities, small differences in density, and then they grew to make objects. And like the Milky Way galaxy, which fragmented, again, by gravity into smaller objects inside, like stars, like the sun. But in the process of the, the sun being made, there were some uh, there was some fragmentation of the debris left be, uh, around the sun, the formation of the sun, and and that made the planet like the Earth. And so uh, life became possible on Earth because water was delivered, and then there was the chemistry of life as we know it that initiated everything we know. So it's there is evolution of complexity, and it's all enabled by gravity making the Earth, bringing water to Earth, and allowing the chemistry of water on Earth. Now, why is life, uh, you know, uh, so um, robust? It's because it, it's able to adapt to changing circumstances. Uh, of course, it, it requires some minimum uh, ingredient. It needs nutrients. Life needs nutrients. But and and the only way that we know it can exist is by liquid water deliver, allowing the nutrients to be processed. So that's why chemistry in liquid water is the only form of life we know. So once, for example, Mars lost its liquid uh, oceans because it lost its atmosphere, uh, it became a desert. We, it's not easy to see life on Mars right now. Nothing is moving. And that's because there is no water. So, uh, But at any event, uh, if you give it water and nutrients, life is able to adapt to changing circumstances. You know, the entire Earth froze solid, became uh, an iceberg. Uh, some along its history multiple times. We see that in the record. And life was able to go through those things. There was a huge impact of an, an asteroid, a, a rock the size of a big city that killed the dinosaurs and 75% of all life forms. But nevertheless, life came, we came to exist after that. So life is able to adapt as long as it has water and the nutrients. And and that is an amazing property of complexity. You know, it's so complex that it's able to, through Darwinian evolution, th to adapt to changing circumstances. And that's why we see it so robustly on Earth. But eventually, Earth will become just like the Mars. It will lose its liquid water, and then there would be nothing uh, that is living on its surface. But however, if we are smart enough to send things to space you know, life, uh, the signatures of life will be out there. So, um, you know, that's, uh, to answer your question, it's intelligence that would, which is a sign of complexity uh, that allows us to venture into space and survive. So no planetary confederacy like in Star Trek or something <laughs> would we meet other aliens and then... Well, you know, if we do encounter someone, uh, we might want to ask if there are any parties in our neighborhood. I don't know, maybe there are. All right, last question, Professor. The title of this podcast is Eurotrash. So I have to ask you something trashy at the end. Do you think it's possible that aliens came to visit Earth, saw how they were represented in our pop culture, got really offended, and then left? Because let's face it, in <laughs> movies, at least, you know, uh, A, they usually don't look very attractive, and B, they're almost always trying to kill us. So maybe they visited in the 90s, saw Independence Day and Mars attacks and were like, we don't deserve to be treated like this. These people are not ready. Bye-bye. Everything is possible. Uh, we should just uh, do better in our future dates with uh, such encounters. So let's try to be better. Is that why you don't watch uh, science fiction movies? Uh, no, I, I don't like it just because it doesn't. the storyline doesn't make sense very often. I can't enjoy it as a physicist. When I see things moving faster than light or, you know, the journey lasting human lifetime, that makes no sense to me. All right. Thank you so much for indulging me, Professor. Uh, this was absolutely fantastic. Uh, when will your book be published and where can people get it? August 29th, 2023. And uh, it's called Interstellar. First, it will appear in English and then in translations. But uh, it can be found on August 29th uh, everywhere in any bookstore that sells books and it's everywhere.
so the release is global global and uh, moreover uh, keep uh, monitoring uh, my uh, essays on medium.com avi lob at medium.com where i will put an update about the results from the expedition hopefully uh, by the end of uh, august 2020. perfect do you still not have any social media yes i don't and it saves me time and it also You know, when you design an airplane, you make it so that the friction with air is minimal. So it minimizes my friction with any anyone else so that I can fly higher. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Oh, I wish I could do that. Um, all right. So medium.com and uh, people can find your book anywhere in all fine bookstores across the globe. Professor Loeb, thank you so much. This was absolutely splendid. I enjoyed every second of it. I hope we can do this again sometime in the future. Same here. All right, thank you to my lovely patrons, Taichi, Carmen, and Veronica. Thank you for your support. You're amazing. If you want to support Eurotrash too, you can do that. Just go to Patreon and find me there. All right, thanks again. <laughs>